Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Just a quick introduction this week. Uh, Today's podcast comes from Saturday's Men's Discipleship Breakfast, where we were continuing our reflections on the theme of pursuing maturity in Christ, which we began with the first two of this year's Men's Discipleship Breakfasts, both of which were also published here on the podcast. So if you've been following along, whether you read All Saints or not, you will have picked up that material. Really, what we're doing today is drawing the threads of those first two sessions together and placing them in a broader context. The aim is to give uh, biblical, theological, pastoral background to some of the, I guess you call them the, the, a, a pastoral theology of growth towards maturity in Christ. Trying to think about uh, this challenge which faces all of us in a way which pays attention to the, uh, the biblical picture of human development and growth and some of the practical steps that flow from that. So I won't say much more by way of introduction. I uh, hope you find it helpful. Uh, listen on and I uh, hope you enjoy it. And that'll do for me for now. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Have you got a Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody awake out there? All right. Um, okay, let's pray and then we shall begin. Merciful Father, thank you for this new day. Thank you for the food you've given us to eat. Thank you for one another. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for your word that testifies about him. And in our better moments, Father, we long to grow towards increasing faithfulness, Christ-likeness, to a full-grown man, finding our place in the community of your people in such a way that we contribute to its life and harmony and growth and strength, not being a drain upon its resources, but being leaders able to exemplify and model the Christian life to others. We do this only through the work of your Spirit who dwells within us, and so we ask for his help and for the help of one another. What a blessing it is to be in a church where there are dozens and dozens of other men who will get up on a Saturday morning and gather around your word with us. And we ask that you would breathe among us by your Spirit once again astonish and delight and amaze us by the insight that your word contains and help us to grow in faithfulness and maturity in Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what I aim to do today is to draw together the threads of the first two of the men's discipleship breakfast from this year and bring a kind of closure and sense of completion to the picture that they uh, draw of the project that we embarked upon at the beginning of this year, uh, which was to say, seeking to articulate a a thought-through we might say methodologically self-aware, biblically informed approach to the task of growing in maturity in Christ or pursuing maturity in Christ. Uh, what I want to do is, is to sketch the background we came from in those first two sessions. We had the third men's discipleship uh, where uh, Justin and Tony uh, talked about their experience of work, something extra, something a bit different. We're back on the track of the first two. And so I want to recap that and locate what we've looked at so far in a broader framework which will fill in some missing pieces that it's possible some of you have already suspected are there. Uh, If you haven't, then don't worry. If you have, then you can be assured and hopefully reassured that, um, oh, right, I thought there was... Ah, I thought there was an extra perspective or two on this task that hadn't been articulated explicitly yet. That's what I'm going to try and do today. Um, It's going to be at one or two points somewhat um, philosophical, not in the sense, I hope, of being irrelevant, but in the sense of giving you the big picture in which what we've talked about so far is located. So you can see the whole landscape of how it is that God is at work in us, and how we are to strive to grow up as men. 
So let me just remind you of where we come from. If you've got this handout um, in front of you, you'll be able to see under the heading uh, Introduction and Recap. I began by calling attention to the problem of persistent, stubborn immaturity in Christ, um, particularly as uh, a feature of church life that pastors notice, because it's our job to notice it, but we all notice it in ourselves, in those uh, we know well. Um, it's not the case that we all grow up kind of steadily and uniformly in all of us, we recognize persistent aspects of not being Christ-like. And the persistence of those features of immaturity or ungodliness, when other people seem to deal with them perfectly well, prompts the question, well, why is that? And is there some insight that we're missing that would help us to grow out of these things that some of our friends seem to have grown out of? I suggested that it is possible to articulate a systematic, biblically-informed framework for the task of growing towards maturity in Christ by recognizing the biblical paradigm of childhood and thinking, okay, according to the Bible, the way it's supposed to work is that our growth chronologically through childhood and adolescence to adulthood corresponds with growth in Christian maturity. So you hit 16, 18, 20 and it's not just that you're five foot eleven or six foot one, grown up physically in stature, or you know ready to go into the world as a, a teacher or an engineer or a doctor or a mechanic or whatever it is, trained vocationally. But you're trained in maturity. You, you've grown up to be the kind of man who can be relied upon. And the framework of childhood is supposed to be how we all grew up, and all of us failed as children. And therefore, we're bearing the cost of that now. So what could we do? Well, we could reinstall or reinstantiate the structures that were supposed to be in place during our childhood to patch up the gaps. Remember, we talked about um, the, the way that great parents raised their kids. They put in place structures to inculcate good habits to produce in them the required character. Do you remember that? And so... I've had a number of conversations with guys in this room in the last few months and over the years before that about, okay, so here's a habit that I've got. Here's an aspect of my character that's out of kilter. What can I do to, um, uh, to grow out of it? And uh, in the second session, we started to get a, a little bit more practical. Um, I began that second session by... Um, giving you some encouragement from Proverbs 30. I won't read the whole of that passage, Proverbs 31 to 6, but I entitled that Encouragement for Desperate Men. You remember the, um, it's, um, I'll just uh, pick up a couple of um, uh, extracts from it. These are the words of Ego, the son of Jeke, the oracle. And the man declares, I'm weary, O God, I'm weary and worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. And actually, a lot of the time, by the time you get so frustrated with yourself that you actually call Pastor Neil or me or you actually speak to your fellowship group leader or you talk to one of the other elders or an older Christian friend or your dad, you're pretty frustrated with yourself. And this passage holds out encouragement for desperate men who've not learned wisdom um, because, first, every word of God proves true in verse 5. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him, who take refuge in him. Um, and also verse 4, of course, in that wonderful way that the scriptures do, is alluding to the one who has ascended to heaven and come down, Jesus Christ himself. Who is So there's hope for us, right? We, we've not been left here alone. God has spoken to us. God has dwelled with us. Um, we have in him everything we need. And then you've got um, that wonderful little cameo that I just happened to have been reading um, uh, before the, the, the second of our discipleship breakfast this year, when Jacob learned in Genesis 42 that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, what are you doing just looking at each other? Like, why don't, why don't you get up and do something? And so the scriptural picture is not a balance between uh, dependence on the grace of God and getting off your backside and doing something, as though you need a bit of dependence on the grace of God and a bit of get off your seat and do something. It's a full tilt 
explosion in both directions, entire dependence on the grace of God and his sufficiency for all things. And at the same time, why are you sitting here looking at each other? Please, will you do something? Uh, as Jacob said to his sons, otherwise we're going to die. Go and get grain. There's food in Egypt. So that picks up the next two bullet points. Absolute commitment to the grace of God. Absolute, um, sorry, dependence on the grace of God. Absolute com- commitment to personal self-discipline, self-discipleship, that is. And then I, I ha- highlighted five features of childhood, which our parents won't do for us anymore. We have to do these things ourselves. Accurate self-diagnosis, clear goals, well-defined structures, tracking progress, and absolutely being committed to the task of growing up. And I know, actually, that some of you have you've thought about specific aspects of um, either just sin or... Um, just, you, you're not the man you know that you should be or you wish that you could be. And, and you've been picking up some of these threads and thinking, okay, how do I make my family life, how do I shape it in a way which makes it more likely to bear fruit in the long term? We've talked about some of these things. So that was the first two sessions. Um, but you may have come to suspect, as I hinted a few minutes ago, that there is a missing ingredient There is, in fact, another, well, there are really two other strands to the full biblical picture of how human beings function, how God has made us to operate, which need our attention if we're to draw on all the Bible's resources in this matter. I I want to highlight one because... Of the three, one of them we're actually quite good at, and I'll come to that in a moment. But the missing ingredient that, I, that either we're not good at automatically or I didn't spend the first two sessions of this year's Men's Breakfast talking about is relationships. We are formed, in summary, we are formed not just by habits, which we've talked about, not just by words, that's the thing that actually we, we're reformed evangelicals, for goodness sake. I mean, here you are on a Saturday morning listening to words. You've got more books in your library than most people um, read in a lifetime, some of you. Um, we have sermons that last well in excess of half an hour. Um, we have teaching coming out of our ears. And when you guys get together to have a beer one evening or have a cigar or something, well, what do you do? Guess what? You talk theology. I mean, it's like, who to funk it? This is, we are full of words. But relationships, relationships is the missing ingredient. And what I want to do is to sketch this in a, a biblical context. And if I call it a philosophical context, I, I, I don't mean to put you to sleep. I'm just, what I'm really trying to say is there is a, a, an underlying substructural framework, rather like the foundation of your house, which the scriptures presuppose and, are, and reflect and are built on. And actually, at points, they articulate explicitly. So let me jump um, into this um, attempt to explain this big picture and place the first two sessions in its context. And in the process, explain this diagram down here. Can you see the diagram on the, the sheet in front of you? Let me begin with a, a really simple statement. All knowledge of everything is knowledge of one of three things. It's knowledge of the word of God. It's knowledge of the world in which we live. And it's knowledge of ourselves. Just think about it for a second. Is there anything you could know about any subject in the universe that doesn't fall under one of those three headings? The Word of God, the world in which we live, ourselves. There's nothing, is there? I mean, like all your professional callings, um, all of your academic specialties, um, your scriptural studies, your instincts, your feelings, your everything about you, everything that goes on in your head reflects knowledge of God's Word or 
the world in which we live or ourselves. Um, just a quick aside, this is exactly how Calvin begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion. If you've read Calvin, he says there are two sorts of knowledge, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So he's breaking these three down into two and lumping world and ourselves into one. He's saying that's all there is. This is not particularly novel. It's just a, a different way of highlighting it. Now, just explore each of those in a bit more detail. God's word. God's word presents us with rules or norms that govern us. It gives us instructions. It gives us um, a, a framework within which we should interpret our emotions, poetry and, and the like. It gives us a historical narrative through which to view the events of history. It tells us what God is doing. Yes? God's word is one aspect of what we might know about anything at all. Second, the world. Well, just think of the situation in which we find ourselves. You are surrounded by just things that happen around you. Um, There are things that have led up to this moment. There are things you're doing right now. There are things that you're going to do. You know things about the world. You know what other people are doing. You know what other people, well, you think you know what other people will do. You know what some of them have done. Um, You know about the history of the world itself. And you know all, all kinds of detail about the world. Almost all of your vocations... Um, looking around at you, insurance agent, um, businessman, uh, fireman, airline pilot, whatever it is that you do, <laughs> all these things. <laughs> Sorry, we had this conversation earlier and I was just looking for an, ex- for an opportunity to go, Ding. anyway. Um, all the things you do, working in the warehouse, um, uh, repairing people's roofs, um, programming computers, all these things are the knowledge of the world. God's word, our word, and ourselves. Well, ourselves are like the window through which we see both those things. But we think about, we look introspectively, don't we? we? We experience the world in a certain way. We have certain desires. We have certain feelings, certain emotions. We evaluate our experiences in certain ways. We like some things. We don't like other things. We have intentions. We have goals that we're trying to achieve. We love certain things. We hate certain things. Can you see this? Um, it's philosophical in the sense that it's kind of the backstory to how everything else works. It's going on under the surface. But it's really significant to think about the world in this way for reasons I'm going to share with you in a second. Everything is knowledge of God's word or the world or ourselves. Now, actually, in the end, any true knowledge in either of those three domains, will be self-consistent, correct? Think about it. You couldn't discover something about yourself that's true and it be inconsistent with the Word of God. You couldn't discover something about the Word of God, which is true, and then look around at the world and find that that's inconsistent with it. Now, it might seem inconsistent because of our ignorance. Often it does. That's one of the things that sometimes leads people to atheism. They see something in the world, like the existence of evil or the existence of scientific order and explanations for things, and think, oh, that's inconsistent with the word of God. Well, they're wrong. It might seem inconsistent. Properly understood, all knowledge of the world and knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of the word of God is is consistent. I mean, you could, if you had a perfect mind, you could just start with the word of God and figure out everything about yourself and everything about the world. You don't have a perfect mind, sorry. Um, You could do it the other way. You could look at the world. And the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. And if you had an infinite mind, you could figure out everything that's true about God by looking at one atom of the created order for one instant of its existence. I think that's Jonathan Edwards who said that. Your theologian, not mine. So, must be true. So, in other words, these, these three foci of knowledge are consistent with each other. Which means that they are actually three different ways of viewing the same thing. Just all that exists. The creation and the creator. Every single thing that exists can and should, to get a complete picture of it, 
be viewed from these three, what I want to call, perspectives. This is not my word, this is John Frame, probably one of the world's greatest living theologians. Everything can and should be viewed from these three perspectives. The perspective of what does God's word say about it, the perspective of, well, what is it in the world, and the perspective of how do I feel about it, for example. You could uh, um, analyse it in that way. Now, John Frame, um, who is, as I said, he's, he's, I think, one of the world's finest living theologians. He's towards the end of his career. Um, he's an old man, but he's still working, still writing, still thinking, still producing books. He's described these three perspectives using three technical terms. Um, and if you look at your diagram on the page in front of you, I've written them down for you. They're the, they're the, the, the um, small print italic words underneath the big boxes. Normative words, situational habits, existential relationships. Every single thing, every single action, even God himself, and some of you are thinking, what, is this like the doctrine of the Trinity? Let's not go there, but actually, it's not that the persons of the Trinity each correspond to one of the perspectives only, although they do. Each of the persons of the Trinity also perspectives on the other two, so it gets more complex than that. But yes, even God himself, and certainly every action, every thought, every person, every object, every thing, every event in the world can and should be understood from these three angles. Yes, we should think, what are the norms that describe and should govern this action? We should think, what are the circumstances, situation in which it took place? What led to it? What will result from it? And we should think, what are the existential feelings, attitudes, motives, desires, loves, hates, goals, character of the people involved in it? Normative, situational, existential. Are you with me so far? Okay, slightly abstract. But now let me try and bring it back to um, some concrete examples. I want to show you in the Bible how this... It's not that this framework is explicitly explained. You don't turn to Mark chapter 17 and find, now, uh, after all these things, Jesus said unto his disciples, now there are three perspectives on any action. It doesn't, doesn't, rather, it's that this is presupposed and helps to make sense of all kinds of things. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Um, turn to Mark chapter 10 if you've got your Bibles. Um, and we've got a couple of great examples here. I mean, and you could do this absolutely every page of Scripture, every single little episode in Scripture. And what have we got in Mark 10? Okay, I was reading this earlier this morning. I uh, got James and John and the request of James and John in um, 10.35. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do? Grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus doesn't seem terribly impressed with this. Really? You want to do that? The baptism I baptised with your beat, etc. Um, but um, that's not a good idea, and it's the Father who's going to decide all that stuff. <laughs> now, what's going on here? What are they doing? Well, they're sinning. How should we describe their sin? Obviously, normatively. It's a breach of the word of God. It's pride, self-aggrandizement, vainglory. It's wanting the best for me, which is the opposite of love. Normative. What else is it? Well, it's... A situational failure. It's a failure properly to reflect on what have been the events that have led up to this point and what would be appropriate to follow from this point. It's certainly an existential failure. What are, what's in their hearts? Ask yourself questions about the motives and the character of a person who would do this. They're failing rightly to experience the world appropriately. And look at the next episode, uh, Jesus and blind Bartimaeus. They're leaving Jericho, verse 46, and um, great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, is sitting by the roadside. He hears it's Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And lots of people said, shut up, be quiet. And he just carried on. And Jesus stopped and said, called him. And said, take heart, he's calling you, and so on and so forth. Recover his sight. Now, this is an act of righteousness in some sense, correct? It's a good thing to do. In what sense is it a good thing to do? Well, normatively, he's calling on the name of the Lord. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's identified the Lord, and he's calling upon him. 
situationally, he's identified the Lord. He realizes that this is the man upon whom he should call. He's reading history correctly. He's also anticipating the future correctly. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And it's, he doesn't say, well, there's probably nothing you can do for me. He says, oh, oh, that'd be helpful if I could see. And so that's what happens. And then emotionally, existentially, what's driving him? It's in his heart. It's a commitment to seek what only Jesus can give. And so on. Can you see? What this framework is, is under the surface of Scripture all over the place. You could spend the rest of the day just going through the Bible one page at a time and analysing the events you see in this way. That's what philosophical theology does. It tells you what's going on under the surface of the things that look familiar to you so that you can understand them more deeply. And what I really want you to understand more deeply is yourselves. Suppose we asked the question, not how do we analyse in this threefold way Jesus' encounter with Bartimaeus? Or how do we analyse in this threefold way the request of James and John? Suppose we ask the question, how do we analyse in this threefold way your task and my task of growing towards maturity in Christ? What will be the things that shape us as we're seeking to do this? What will they be? Well, they'll be normative, situational, existential. Look at the diagram. They will be words, normative, word shapers. And this is the point at which I wanted to say earlier. um, I think we got this down pretty well. There are churches where they have a five-minute Sermonette for Christianettes, as Pastor Wilson once memorably put it. Um, If you're lucky. Um, And no interest in encouraging meditation on the word of God or the things of God. And the service is over almost before it's begun. And and nobody, there's no interest in, Pastor, please will you explain this to me? And one of the delights of serving here, it was similar back in England, the manual, uh, Pastor Neil would say the same thing, is it? We, we have the privilege of ministering to people who love the word. I mean, like, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Like, you'd find a church where it was a bit, sermons were a bit less demanding, right? Um, so, words will shape us. And I think, by God's grace, um, we need to carry on. We need to not be complacent. We need to keep pushing ourselves. We might even need to do occasional bits of philosophical theology, right? But, but I think, praise God. We are men of the word, mostly, and we can be more so, and, but I wouldn't identify that as a, a big deficit. Now, second, situational. Well, that's what the first two sessions this year were all about. Um, look at the bullet points underneath that um, corner of the diagram. Our daily routines, our meals, our sleeping and waking, our commute, our work schedule, our weekly worship, our monthly cigar nights... Even things as trivial sounding as our habits of greeting and personal behaviours and mannerisms constitute, or they're a tiny part of, the habits that form us. I noticed something very strange a few months ago. I noticed some of you men greet one another with a holy kiss. Come on, own up. Hands up. Yeah. Right. Now why? Presumably what you did was something like you were talking about words, theology and the teaching of scripture, and you thought, well, we don't want this to be a big thing, like this is the holy kissing church. That would not probably be a great, of all the things we could be known for. But you, perhaps you thought, well, why don't we just do what seems to be a kind of, at least scripturally permitted and perhaps appropriate? I don't know, technique of greeting each other? Is that, is that how you describe it? <laughs> Can you see? What, now, what have you done? You've said, and maybe you didn't even realise you were saying this, or maybe you did, because I, I bet you did, because I know some of the people who are in that conversation. And So probably you said something like, these habits will form and shape us in ways that we might not even realise. Yeah? Um, just like um, 
if you never say good morning to anybody, that, that's a bad habit which will form and shape you in ways that you might not even realise. Yeah, so what you're doing there is correcting or tweaking or just changing those habits. Now, first couple of sessions, this is what we're all about. We're in that bottom left-hand corner of the diagram. And we spent a good amount of time on it. But the bottom right-hand corner of the diagram, can you see there's a big fat question mark there? Because it turns out that, um, at least for us here, where we are right now in our kind of men's discipleship breakfast program, we've not got to this. We've not yet thought explicitly and self-consciously about how and why relationships form us in the way they do. And we've certainly not thought explicitly and self-consciously about how we could exploit that. How could we, if this is going to be so significant, and I think it is, how could we um, use this? How could we put it to work? What could we do to exploit the formative power of other people upon us? Now, if this is correct, you would expect to find it in the Bible, and you do. Um, I've got a bunch of texts here. I'm looking at the time. We have a bit of time, so I'm going to just point you to some of them. Um, the obvious places to, to look are the, the kind of mentoring relationships of Scripture. And in one sense, that's what we're building a framework for. Uh, mentoring, role models is a, is a sort of loose term. Um, but that's the kind of thing we might expect to find. And it is intriguing how um, the relationship between Moses and Joshua works, isn't it? How the relationship between Elijah and Elisha works. Um, how the relationship between Jesus and his disciples works. The word disciple um, comes from a verb which means to teach or to learn. The disciples are learners. They've gone to this man to learn. And they didn't just listen to his normative teaching, did they? They did do that. But they followed him around. They observed his habits. They they woke up one morning and discovered he's nowhere to be found. Why? Well, because he's gone out somewhere quiet to pray. Well, that's a good idea. I wonder how much that stuck with them. You see, they're being shaped and formed and taught by him as a person and that, let's use the technical terms, existential encounter with Jesus becomes the medium through which the normative and the situational permeate. But you also find it explicitly in individual texts. Let me give you a couple of examples. 1 Corinthians 4. Let's look at this in the... 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses um, 14 to 16. And this speaks so loudly and clearly to so many of our experiences... 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. You know about the church in Corinth, right? Well-meaning, some of the time, uh, faithful, mature, godly, uh, not much of the time. Corinth is sort of, you know, capable of wonderful uh, uh, insight and so on and so forth, but time and time again, um, Paul has to call them out on things. Well, look at why. Chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, hold on a second. Why would Paul refer to them as his children? Well, for though you have countless guides in Christ, all those super apostles with whose impressive public speaking you are uh, altogether bit too enamoured. You've got many guides, air quotes, guides. You do not have many, what? Fathers. What's a father supposed to do? Well, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, what? To be imitators of me. You see what he sees is lacking in them. He says elsewhere that, like, you don't lack any spiritual gift. You know, you've, got, you've, got all, you've got it all, basically. You're full, filled with knowledge, normative. But what have you not got? 
You've got nobody to show you the way. You've got nobody to look at in whom you see encapsulated the character and virtue of mature godliness to which you should be aspiring. What this perspective on ourselves calls attention to is the fact that we don't really pick up habits so well in the abstract. If I talk to you about patience and patience and patience and patience for a while, and we could discuss patience, right? But then you see somebody exemplifying patience. It's profoundly transformative, potentially. Or hard work. We could talk about hard work. And I, I had many sermons on hard work. I've read books about hard work. I tell you, but, but the one thing that really sticks in my mind when I think about working hard, I'll tell you a story. Where I, we used to live in London. Um, my, when Ben was small and didn't have his own room, he shared with the girls. They were tiny. I, I had his bedroom, which was a good six feet by eight in size. It was my study. And it looked out the front of the house. And next door to our house, on, on the right-hand side as I looked out, um, was Mariusz and his family. Mariusz is a Polish man. And he was a a builder. Um, He worked for another building company during the day. And I would sometimes be working, like if it got to about 5.30 or quarter to six, I'd be working and he came home. Now, if I had to work late, I'd be working there. And I'd be working as he went out to work again. Because Marius used to work kind of, you know, seven in the morning through to 5.30 in the evening for the company that he was employed by. And then in the evening, he'd run his carpentry business, cabinet making, um, installing shelves and so on in people's homes, that sort of thing. So he just did two jobs. Why would he do that? Well, because, um, oh, let's be honest about it. Um, he's a Polish immigrant from a poor country to a wealthy country, and he did not come to England to sponge off the government, that is to say the taxpayer. He came to England to work to create a a new life for his family, and he worked like a beast. And it's that that stuck with me, just seeing Mariusz going out in the evening. I'm just kind of totally blitzed. Like, I'm brain dead. I hope, go downstairs and hope Nicole doesn't want to talk about anything because I'm, like, I'm going to be terrible conversation. Mariusz is just jumping in his truck, and off he goes to work. And a few years later, they moved out of that house, which they were renting, and bought a house around the corner. Let me tell you, buying a house in London as a Polish immigrant is something you cannot do unless you were working two jobs for five or ten years beforehand. And that stuck with me. Some other examples. And this is just all over the New Testament. First Thessalonians 1. Just turn on a few pages, and we'll just go through a few of these. Not, not too many. Uh, here it's a really interesting text because in First Thessalonians he's actually um, explaining what it is that their conversion to Christ was. What, what did it mean for them to become Christians? Well, verse 2, he points out what they pray for, their faith, love, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came in words and also in power and the Holy Spirit. You, we, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Hold on, what's he talking about himself now? He's reflecting on the fact that you know what we did. We, we came to you and we behaved in a certain way for your sake. And your conversion to Christ visibly consisted in this, verse 6, you became imitators of us. And of the Lord, because 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Actually becoming a Christian for these people meant, well, here's a guy I'm going to follow. I'm going to observe closely and imitate him. And of course, when it goes off the rails, as it does in Thessalonica, like everywhere, um, Paul has to call attention to it. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. This is the last biblical example we'll go to. Um, So they've been doing a reasonable job, these Thessalonians, of reflecting on what they saw embodied in the life of this man, Paul, and of course his companions. Um, Verse 6, we command you, brothers, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Oh, there we are, work again. Um, Verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. 
Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we didn't have that right. Paul establishes elsewhere that as a minister of the gospel, he would be perfectly within his rights morally to um, only work for those who would actually finance him and so that he didn't have to make tents in the evenings. But he said, well, we did make tents in the evenings. Why did we do this? To give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, we realized that the normative perspective alone would be insufficient. We realized that just words wouldn't do it. Even just words designed to inculcate habits, situational perspective. Like we actually, you were so clueless. We actually needed to live among you to show you the way. And now you've got some of these guys who are just so excited about the second coming of Jesus, they don't want to get up in the morning. Well, um, if, he's not, if he's going to do that, don't feed him. He'll soon get the message. If a man will not work, let him not eat. And he'll soon come round and he'll change his theology so he can have breakfast. People do that. Um, and you see it again and again. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Hebrews 13, 7. Philippians 3. Um, it's all over the New Testament. Um, it's, it's not just, oh, this would be useful. Um, it's, this is part, this is one of the ways in which you describe what it means to be a Christian. You learned to imitate a man who is. Now, what do we do with this? The, the problem is, it is much, well, there's lots of problems. One problem, it is much harder to engineer this. Much harder. If we had a normative problem, we could solve that quite easily by giving you all a reading list, couldn't we? And, you know, look, you've not, not read the Bible in the last year? Well, uh, here's a Murray McChain reading plan. Go to it. You, you don't know one end of the Trinity from another. Well, here's a nice, simple book on the subject. But I don't think we've got that problem. If we had a situational habit problem, it would be slightly more tricky because you need not just self-discipline for the 20 minutes you're reading your Bible in the morning, but you really need to inculcate a whole new attitude to your life. But at least it's you who's responsible for doing it. What's the problem with trying to create the role models that perhaps we lacked? I'm looking here at my son. Like, I promise you he hasn't had the role model he needs. Which is to say, I promise you I've not been the father I needed to be for him to be immune from this talk and so uh, maybe I'm very sure that in lots of ways many of you men are better fathers than I've been absolutely confident of that and that's not just me kind of trying to butter your biscuit or whatever the expression is Um, but if anybody thinks they've been a perfect father think again it's not it's no discredit to your dad that you say yeah he's not he didn't give me everything I need it's okay. Like, that's something I have to deal with on my knees before the Lord as a, as a failed father. But I don't want Ben to sit there and say, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be rude to, to Pastor Jeffrey. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. So I'm, I, you know, we're not being rude to your dads to say, yeah, my dad wasn't perfect. He'd be the first to tell me. But now what do I do? Where are you going to find... Because you can't say, hey, listen, I think Nate's a great role model of work, so I'm just going to invade your office for six months. I hope you don't mind. Can you see? We have, we have a problem here. Practically speaking. Um, but the rewards, I think, are mighty. Consider how you've been affected by little momentary incidents. Like my looking out the window seeing Mariush. Can you think of people you've seen doing something? They might have spoken something to you, so it might have that kind of normative element. It might be words they said, but, but think of somebody you saw doing something that really stuck with you. I'll give you an ex- one more example. Um, when our children were very young, um, I think I might have mentioned this to you before, um, Ben Merkel and his family, now president of New St. Andrews College, came over to the UK. He was doing his PhD, DPhil in Oxford, and we got to know them. They came to the church in Emmanuel a few times. 
it's only like an hour and a quarter away. That's a long way in England, but anyway. Um, and so we went around to their house for dinner once. And our kid's very young, and we... we and uh, we had... We just spent the afternoon with them, and you know, they, they rented this sort of farmhouse just outside Oxford, and um, so we spent the afternoon with them, and they had this meal in the evening. And it was the most wonderful, joyous meal. I can't describe it to you, but it was just... I sat there, and I had this, like, I almost pushed my chair back from the table just to watch all these happy children. And I thought at that moment, this is the kind of family I want to have. And I tell you, I read a gazillion books about Christian family life. And we've tried to, with some success, by God's grace, put in place habits of what's going to work well and what's going to give us good time together and how are we going to enjoy uh, meals, which is so important, and you all talked about that to death, and, and how are we going to try and show hospitality. But that one moment, 10 seconds, I tell you, it has shaped my life more than almost anything. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of little things like that. I think of the, the times I used to knock on David Field's door when I was a seminary student a long time ago. And I know he's the most busy man in the college because he's so productive and did so much teaching and writing and stuff. You knock on his door, and it would always be ajar, so when you knocked on it, it sort of swung open. And when you walked in, he would always make you feel like you were the one person in the entire universe that he most wanted to see right at that moment. And I can remember the moment it first occurred to me. (laughs) And it I don't know how many books I could have read about how when you're pastoring, people are more important than things and so on in relation. But just that fragment of experience, relational contact with a man who's showing me how to love other people. It's just remarkable. So if we can figure out how to do it, he said five minutes left before 10 o'clock. If we can figure out ways to meditate upon, seek, benefit from good role models. Find somebody doing something like what the Corinthians were supposed to find Paul doing or the Thessalonians were supposed to find Paul doing. And meditate on that. I I actually don't know how to suggest you do this. And I suspect this is why this doesn't get talked about very much because it's quite hard to engineer I'm not going to try and engineer a program of role modelling at All Saints. But boy, do we need it. Or something like that. So that's what I want to leave you with. I want to leave you with, the. I I think, a long-term challenge to work out how we can systematically, well, first, be that kind of model to others. And then systematically seek to appropriate the benefits of that from others. Who, are you, who do you admire? Why? Well, think really carefully about that. Don't just say the first thing that comes into your head and think, why do I, why do I admire him? I, I'll give you one, one more example, then I'll finish. On my, my, my desktop, um, or my, my laptop in my office, I've got a picture of the Apostle Paul by Rembrandt. You might think, why did I do that? Because my job involves lots of sitting down and thinking. If I, if, all our jobs are different, but for me, I have to sit and spend a lot of time just thinking kind of hard. And this is a picture of Paul the Apostle, a brilliant picture of Paul the Apostle. And he looks like he's struggling with that bit in Galatians 4 that I don't think even he understood. Um, and he's just got this expression of concentration and reflection on his face and and when I see it I can't imitate Paul in but because here's the key point because the power of examples is so intense relational contact with a person is potentially so transformative even just that kind of reminder and pictorial embodiment of what a man ought to be like um, is really, for me, significant. My old mentor in London, Richard Kokin, first church I ever worked at, 
used to have a, uh, a cross, a rough cross in his study. It's about three feet high. And into the, the top of the, the tea piece, it had a, just a four-inch long, quarter-inch diameter nail, which he'd hammered in. Can you see what he's doing? He's trying to capture something about the man he wants to imitate. And I have no idea how you're going to do this. But I think if we can, we stand to benefit from it immensely. Let me pause, give you a chance just to think. Um, Maybe we should pray in a moment or two, but I'll give you a moment just to reflect and think. If there's anything you want to throw in after that, then we can. Just take a moment. I'm, I'm torn between um, wanting to open a conversation with you all and, and wanting to honour your time. And I think um, we should try and do both. With one minute to go, um, I'll honour your time. And so if you need to go, and I know that some of you will do, um, you can do so. Um, but uh, as it happens, uh, I'm going to be sticking around for a few minutes anyway. And so if you wanted to chat a little bit. Um, but gentlemen, this is something that... Um, perhaps should give more practical thought to. Um, And I suspect there may be many, many, many different ways in which we can serve one another so that our strengths become combined rather than our weaknesses dragging one another down. Shall I pray? And then we'll finish. Merciful Father, you've given us in Jesus the greatest example of perfected humanity mature manhood, courage, faithfulness, joy and sobriety, hard work and wisdom and love. And you've made us members of his body and called us to be like Christ to one another. And so without being irreverent, we long to find ways to find in one another the virtues of Jesus, and to display to one another the virtues of Jesus, to pull one another up by the relationships that we have, by our contemplation on the work that your Spirit is doing in the men around us, the ways in which we need to learn from them. And we ask you to open our eyes to opportunities for this, now and in the months and years to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.